All right, hi ladies, my name is Rebecca Johnson. If I've never met you, I'm so glad that you are joining us for our study on the book of Mark. This semester is different, as you already know, but I'm really excited about it. I woke up this morning totally excited to be in the Word of God with you, so to speak, and that's an answer to prayer. So I am praying that your small group time is rich and that your conversation is good and that this video, while it may not be ideal, um, would uh, bless you and encourage you to love the Lord well. So let's just dig right in. Um, the norm for each week of Bible study will be that you will start with your small group discussion and that then you will uh, turn on the, the video teaching. Now, if you are watching this and you have not yet watched just my little homemade intro video, I would encourage you to do that right away afterwards. That's gonna give you some more insight on how we study the Bible here as Veritas Women. Um, it'll kind of give you some insight into how the Bible study is formatted, what was going through our minds as we wrote it, um, just so that it'll make more sense to you. And then I think the subsequent weeks will be an uh, even better experience for you. So let's study the book of Mark. Today we're going to look at chapters one and two. So hopefully you have finished your first week of homework uh, here's how it starts. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right away, Mark is saying, hey, I'm gonna tell you a story. In the beginning, there was really good news. And that news was about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the story just takes off and it moves really quickly. And it has this sense of excitement in it. Mark is an amazing storyteller. And if this room was actually full of women, I would ask you guys who some of your favorite storytellers are. Now in the classic Christian woman circle, we would probably hear some of you say C.S. Lewis or Tolkien and heck, we're in Iowa City. So some of you would probably say J.K. Rowling, right? Well, storytelling is near and dear to my heart. I would even say that storytelling is in my family. It's kind of a Hamby thing, my maiden name. I have memories of my grandma Hamby telling my sisters and I the most amazing stories from her childhood. And we would just be enraptured by it. And then my dad kind of took that into our childhood. And I remember my dad over and over again telling us these original stories. And they started off like this. A long time ago in the jungles of Northern India, there lived a young honey bear by the name of Sri Lanka. And he would tell this whole story that wove in like biblical themes and like character development lessons. And he would tell us these stories at bedtime. And we listened so well, just again, completely enraptured by these stories. Guys, I am not kidding you. I found out one week ago there actually is nothing called a honey bear. Honey bears were made up. In fact, the reason my dad even did this is that moments before we needed to be calmed down with the story as young girls, he just saw the bear-shaped container of honey. And that's where Sri Lanka, the honey bear, came from. Well, it continues to be in our family. Even my brother uh, tells a series of stories to my sons. This one's not about a honey bear, but about a character named Hippo Man. 
and I'm hoping that there's good character development and Christian morals in it, but I'm not sure yet if Hippo Man possesses that ability. But storytelling is important to me. And Mark is a brilliant storyteller. And this story that we're going to be in for the next two months, it's not just a story, but it's almost like an action movie. Action movies are a big deal, again, in my home, as I have three boys. So it's pretty much all we watch, Marvel movies. We watch so many Marvel movies, I don't even want to tell you. And the more that my boys watch them and then repeatedly watch them, the more they seem to love it. And recently, I've noticed that the more they watch these, the more that the overall plot unfolds, the more that these layers of storyline seem to open up in front of them. And I think that we're going to find the same to be true in the book of Mark. So Mark's real name was John Mark. And actually, he wasn't one of the 12 original disciples. Scholars believe that he is the Mark that was spoken of later on in the New Testament uh, when Paul talks about him and describes him as being a co-worker of Peter. So scholars would actually show us that the book of Mark was Mark writing down Peter's story. So imagine Mark sitting there with the Peter that, that we're familiar with and writing down Peter's firsthand experience of what he saw in the life of Jesus. It was the first of the four Gospels written, probably recorded about 60 years after Jesus's life and death and resurrection. And it was first given to probably a Gentile audience. So a non-Jewish audience living within the Roman province, living under Caesar. And he starts his story like this, the beginning of the Gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We notice right away that although Mark begins with the beginning of the story of Jesus, he doesn't take us to a manger scene. Instead, he takes us to the first half of the Bible, to the book of Isaiah. And he starts with this, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So why would this be effective? Why would it be important for Mark and Peter to take us back to the words of a prophet right away? Well, I think anyone who has had some time in, in Bible study would say, hey, it's cool when you can see the words of a prophet come true, especially when it comes true in the Gospels, when you see like a promise fulfilled. And so here we would look at this and we would say, okay, so we see that Isaiah's prophecy about someone being a forerunner for the Christ, the Messiah, somebody preparing the way for the Christ. That's cool because we're seeing it happen with John the Baptist. And that's totally true. But as I've been studying this, I think it's important for us to slow down here and really understand what it meant for Mark's audience but even the audience that was watching this happen, that was watching John the Baptist baptize these people. So I think we have a couple questions that we need to ask. Who were the prophets? Why did they matter? What were they saying? How long were they saying it for? So we should actually go back into this context. Come with me 
to the time of Mark. Come back with me to Palestine. Because when the Old Testament closed, so to speak, the people of God, the Israelites, they were back in their home. They were in Israel. So think of maybe the story of Nehemiah, if you're familiar with that. Ezra and Nehemiah, the story of God's people coming home after exile, after a time of discipline. As they came home, they were still under a foreign rule. They were under Persia. They weren't ruling themselves. So politically and culturally, they were under pagan domination. And I imagine that that return home was not what they expected. So this is a little bit of a history lesson. So please geek out with me. I I will enjoy it. So they go from Persia rule to then Greek rule. So Alexander the Great, if you can go all the way back to high school history, we can remember Maybe, I don't remember much, but Alexander the Great then rose to power. So the Greeks take over the Persians. But then Alexander the Great died prematurely. And so then everything under Greek control uh, kind of became a mess. And so there was kind of this rivalry on two sides of the Greek people. And Israel was stuck right in the middle of it. And for the next period of time, there was just a lot of oppression and revolts. The the people of God tried to fight against this pagan domination. And about 60 years before the time of Christ, Rome rose to power. So imagine Rome marching into Jerusalem and kind of just setting up rule there. And they would rule that area for almost 500 years. Rome was the most powerful and the most evil of all the foreign rulers in all of Israel's history. Severe taxes, brutal abuse became the norm for the people of God. And anyone who revolted against Rome was crucified. So what was the role of the prophets? Well, long before a season of discipline for the people of God, people of God before the time of exile, the prophets. Uh, So people like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, they had a role in warning the people of God, telling them, hey, return to God, or this is gonna happen. You're gonna get disciplined. But then even after God's people ignored it and then faced this discipline of being sent away from their home, the prophets had a very important role. They were the people who carried the promises of God through these dark years. So through exile and after exile, the prophets' voices were so important because they reminded the people of God that although life looks horrible, God's promises remain true. God's covenant will remain. So as the people came back to the land again in that time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back to their land hoping and clinging to the promises of God. They were waiting for God to return to them, to return to their land and to rule from Jerusalem. That was the hope of this nation. The Jewish people at the time of the story of Mark were hundreds of years into waiting. Hundreds of years Ladies, can you imagine the fatigue that you would feel? 
or the exhaustion. Put yourself there in ancient Palestine, hundreds of years, centuries. That means generations and generations and generations of your family under foreign rule, under oppression, just being like chronically disappointed and angry. This was their situation. What would it be like to be them? To feel exiled, even in your own home. For us to understand why the story of Jesus is such good news, we have to understand this. To understand why the story of Jesus is such good news, we have to understand how bad it was, first of all. This was their story. This was their context. This was the chapter of the story in which they were living. Everyone is desperate. And then Jesus shows up. Now, don't hate me for this. It's a premature Christmas line, but the leaves are changing colors, so I feel okay doing this. Imagine this, the dark scene, and Jesus shows up. Don't you hear the lyrics? A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. So with that context in mind, let's look at a few things that Jesus does in these first two chapters of Mark that should excite us and should make us curious for the rest of the book. Really, our goal today is not to hit on everything in chapters one and two, but to actually create more questions. So here's what we read this week, a list of things that Jesus did. The first thing that we'll draw attention to is that Jesus gets baptized. Now, you'll hear me say this a lot. To be a good student of the Bible doesn't mean that you have studied for years and years or that you're the smartest woman in the room, but it means that you ask good questions. So when we see that Jesus gets baptized, we should stop and say, why? That's weird. Why would Jesus get baptized? And I hope that you talked about that in your small group time. And I bet that as you did, that you talked about, well, Jesus was identifying with the people he came to save. Maybe you said that Jesus was being a good example and you would be absolutely right. But I think it's even a nod to something we're gonna see throughout the whole book, that Jesus is right away showing us his humanity, that he's fully man. But more than that, that he is the example of a perfect human. Over and over again, we are gonna see that he is showing us how to be a good human. It's nice and it's practical. It's a good place to start. But if we study slowly and we get close to the text, we saw a lot more in his baptism. So we saw that Jesus began his public ministry as he stepped into the Jordan River. And in your homework, you were asked, why would this matter? Well, this was the same body of water that Joshua stepped into as he led the Israelites into the promised land. This is a story right before the familiar story of Jericho. Think about that time. Could there have been any more of an exciting time for the people of God? They were finally arriving in the promised land. A promise was becoming a reality for the people of God. So we are cued in as the readers now, we're cued in and we say, wait a minute, could that be happening again? Could it be that a promise 
is becoming a reality for the people of God. Okay, next observation, we notice at the baptism that the Trinity is there. The three in one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus was obviously there at the baptism. And then we saw that God spoke from the heavens and that the Spirit of God hovered and anointed King Jesus. And it took us back to creation. When God spoke, when the word of God, meaning Jesus, acted and the spirit hovered over the surface of the deep. It's almost like this excited, unified, okay, all hands on deck. Why? Because the triune God was doing something new and something exciting. And so maybe as Mark intentionally began his story with the beginning, and we hear in the beginning, we connect that this is a story of recreation, and we should feel excited, and we should feel curious. Okay, secondly, we read, not only does Jesus get baptized, but he takes on the wilderness. Starting in verse 12, it says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So if you've read the other Gospels, maybe you actually felt like Mark forgot part of the story. And you might notice that often throughout this book, that the accounts Mark gives are shorter than the other Gospels. Like I said, they're faster paced. But the details he does include matter a lot. So let's ask some good questions of this. This should seem weird to us. Again, why would Jesus, who has been introduced as king and was just introduced as the beloved son of God from a voice from heaven, why would he go to a wilderness? I mean, where do kings go? They don't go out to be miserable in a wilderness. Don't they go to a throne? Where do beloved sons go? Again, not to a miserable wilderness. Don't beloved sons go home to a place of comfort and safety. And then there was this detail. It says that he was driven to the desert, almost like he was cast out into the wilderness. And we should be confused by that, okay? Think about the baptism. Think of the joy that Jesus would have felt. Think about the affirmation he felt from heaven and the unity he felt within the Godhead. And then bam, it says that the Spirit drove him to the desert. And he was there for 40 days. Maybe you know this, but 40 means, indicates testing in the Bible. Numbers often hold a lot of meaning. And so we were cued in, okay, wait, this sounds like other stories in the Bible. This sounds like the story of the Israelites following their exodus where they were in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years, being tested. Here we saw that in the book of Mark, Jesus was tempted by Satan, and that he was with the wild animals, and that he was ministered to by angels. And so we were, again, curious, why does this sound like Eden? Why does this sound like a recreation of Adam and Eve, who were tempted by the serpent, who were with the wild animals, 
and later who had angels blocking their way back in. See, maybe Jesus is not just revealing himself to be human, but he seems to be signaling that he's redoing scenes of the Bible where the people of God failed. And so we should ask, why? Why is this good news? But let's keep going. Remember, we're not looking to just answer everything today, but to build a list of questions as we start our study. So next, we saw just a little bit faster now that he proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, you should feel some excitement. You should feel curious. There's strength in his words. He actually sounds a bit like a prophet. So remember the context of these people. The words of the prophets are what they had been clinging onto for centuries. And Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand means something is within reach. Dawn is breaking. It's like the sun is just about to peak over the dark horizon. Imagine the expectations that arose in the people who heard Jesus's words here. And then as the next chapter unfolds, we see that Jesus takes on sickness and death. We see him take on demons, expelling darkness from people. But maybe we got confused already again when we saw that Jesus would silence demons who knew him. First of all, isn't it weird that the demons seem to know exactly who he is? But then Jesus would keep them from sharing that with people. Don't just breeze by it, but say, what? Why? What difference would it make if people understood right away who he was? Was there something about who Jesus was and and what he was coming to do, or maybe how he was going to do it, where it needed to be a story that unfolded slowly, a story that opened up slowly along the way. And lastly, at least for, for now, we saw that Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Maybe a small detail that if we're reading quickly, we would overlook, but we slow down and we say, Son of Man, what is that? And we're going to see it throughout the whole book, but we went back to the book of Daniel where that phrase comes from. And we see that Daniel has this prophecy of someone called the Son of Man. And he is given power and authority and dominion from the ancient of days, from God. We'll touch on it more later. There's so much more, even in the first two chapters, but this quick list from Mark is him appealing to our curiosity. See, the closer we look at these opening chapters, the more we see layers of goodness, the more the plot opens. So what's the good news in this? What Jesus did just in these first two chapters was just a taste of what he came to do on a much bigger picture. So what Jesus did here on earth was just a foretaste of what he was going to do on a cosmic scale. This week, we filled out a a starter chart, a chart where we just put the explicit answers to who is Jesus. But are you seeing already that there's so much more to that answer? 
Mark has packed so much more than just those four or five explicit answers into just his prologue. So look again really quickly at these things that we saw Jesus do and ask the question, what are his actions revealing about his identity? In his baptism, could we actually see that Jesus is the true and better Joshua? That Jesus is here to lead his people into a realization of a promise. I heard it said once that the promise maker of the Old Testament Old Testament becomes a promise keeper of the new. Could it be that Jesus in his baptism is saying, hey guys, I am here to lead the people through the waters and into the kingdom of God. Or how about his wilderness? In his wilderness, do we begin to see that Jesus is the one whom Moses was pointing toward when Moses was willingly exiled to the wilderness? How about when Jesus overcame temptation and testing and Satan? We could see that he's the better Israel, Israel who was called the son of God in the Old Testament. That was pointing to Jesus, the perfect son of God, the one who would obey, the one who would overcome the test. See, in this prologue and then throughout the book, guys, we are going to see that Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, as theologians would call him. Where Adam failed to rule for God and extend God's kingdom on earth, Jesus would do it perfectly. He would not allow a wild animal, a snake, to rule over him, but he would have dominion and authority and power over the wild animals, over demons, over all of creation. In fact, even in these first couple chapters, we realize that Jesus has come to to not just be the second Adam, but to fix the mess that Adam made. So when when he heals sickness and expels demons, he's cleaning up after Adam. And there's even hints on how he would do it, how he would bring about this recreation, this restart, he would be driven out. Jesus would be cast out by God himself and taking on an exile that we deserve. Jesus would go under the wrath of God, symbolized by the chaotic waters of baptism. But he wouldn't stay there. He would rise again. And as he did, as he rose again, he would invite his people, his kingdom people, to follow him into a new exodus of sorts, out and away from slavery, no longer under the thumb of pagan rules, but reigning under King Jesus. Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God. That is what the whole book of Mark is about. The good news is that Jesus has come and brought the kingdom. But let's not leave it up in the clouds. Let's not fake nod like we think that means anything to us. Let's bring it down. Take the time to ask the question, what do we do with it? Why do we care? Two observations that have hit home for me. What do we do with this? We follow Jesus. Right? It's, it almost seems too simple. And that's been a struggle of mine through the book of Mark until recently. This seems too simple, this invitation to believe in who Jesus is. 
but to see it and hear it with fresh eyes is rich. What do we do with these first two chapters of Mark? We resolve to follow Jesus. We watched as Jesus invited his first disciples, his first kingdom people. He invited them to drop their nets and to follow him. He invited them to find their life's purpose in kingdom work. So ladies, let me ask you the question, what is keeping you from following Jesus? I think the answers could vary greatly. What is keeping you from following Jesus? If you've never followed Jesus before, maybe it's just an invitation to faith, believing in what your eyes cannot yet see. Maybe it's an invitation to no longer chart your own course, but to follow him. But how about for those of us who have been following him for a long time? What keeps us from following him more closely? Maybe years and years ago, you dropped your net, so to speak, and followed him with gusto. But as the years have passed, you've kind of started to lag behind or drag your feet a little bit. Why is that? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe that adrenaline we felt when we first started following Jesus has fizzled out. Or maybe we don't like where he's led us to. Maybe following Jesus has become so routine that we don't even realize we've stopped doing it or we've stopped doing it with passion. I think this, this study is a fresh invitation for all of us to follow Jesus, to trust him. Even if where he leads us is scary or uncomfortable or unknown. Because here's the promise that we landed on in chapter two. When we follow Jesus, ladies, we find joy and rest. I love how early in the book of Mark, Jesus shares these examples, these conversations he has with his disciples. The first one, when he's talking about fasting and he's getting challenged about why his disciples aren't fasting. And he says, essentially, because I'm with them and I am joy. And then not long after, another confrontation about Sabbath. And Jesus, in the most beautiful of ways, shows that he is rest. Who doesn't want one of those two things? But for us to experience the rest and joy that Jesus offers, we have to follow him. And as we follow him, we will understand who he is. I mean, look at the beautiful intricacy of when he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and we are taken back into the whole of the Bible to see that Sabbath started with God himself that after six days of good and perfect and complete work, God rested. And on that seventh day in the Genesis account, in the creation account, it doesn't say, and there was morning and there was evening. It's like 
God is saying that this last day of rest has no beginning and no end. It's an eternal rest. It's like he's giving us something to look forward to. After we have finished the kingdom work that he has given us to do, we have eternal rest waiting for us. And then at the apex of the story, when Jesus comes and does his good work, he has bought that rest for us. And then he invites us to come to him, even if we're weary, especially if we're burdened. Come to him that we may find rest for our souls. What a sweet invitation for us. The good news as we start the book of Mark is that this story is ours for the taking. Ladies, I know whether you're watching this teaching right now in 2020 or 10 years from now, that things may look dark. Things may look bleak. You may be tired, but we have to remember what part of the story we are living in. See, the kingdom of God has come. We are reading the story of Jesus from the pages of Mark, from the past. The kingdom has come. Jesus has ushered in his kingdom. That's the story of our next two months. It is an epic story, but it is so much bigger than even what it meant for ancient Israel. It's a bigger story than that. It's the biggest story ever. It's the story of God. The story of God that reached back from way before creation and then all the way through the last pages of Revelation. See, while the kingdom of God has already come and we celebrate that, we also understand that it has not yet been fully realized. There is more of that goodness to come. The story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is still unfolding. It is still opening up to us. And we are invited to find our story within this bigger story. What would that look like for you? to find your story within the big story of God. Maybe what it means for right now is that we acknowledge, I think it was Kevin DeYoung who said this recently, we are not just living within the story of America. We're not just living within the story of COVID or 2020. We are not just a pawn being moved around at the whim of a horrible storyline. Ladies, as children of God, we are living within the story of the kingdom. We are living within the story of the kingdom of God. So we should be curious and we should be excited. God is a God of good news and God is doing a good work, whether we can see it or not right now. So when we place our story within the context of the kingdom, what happens is those headlines diminish and maybe the tension gets turned down a little bit and our heads get lifted as we find 
that our place is to celebrate that Jesus has come and that he has brought the kingdom and that the best is yet to come. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your good work that you are doing. I thank you, triune God, that you have made salvation possible for us. That you have made salvation and nearness to you possible through the work of Jesus. So Lord, I pray for your children that we would be curious and excited that your word would pull us back to the edge of the seat, even if we are tired and burnt out and jaded and grouchy, Lord, would you pull us forward with thankful hearts, with expectant hearts to see your story with fresh eyes. And God, we don't wanna go any further into your word without hearing the invitation to repent and believe. Would we go no further into the homework or into discussion without taking you up on this opportunity to repent? Lord, would you forgive us for our sometimes hard hearts? Would you forgive us where there's unbelief? Would you forgive us where there's loose tongues, critical spirits, hot tempers? We thank you for the truth that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then God, would you help us to believe? Would we believe that you, God, are good and that Jesus came and did some mighty works? We love you and we thank you for your love for us. Amen.